you can uh, open up the scriptures this morning to Genesis uh, chapter 1. We will begin there in just a moment. We have been looking at the promise of the Spirit from the New Covenant, and we have reached the point at which Christ has poured Him out upon us, we've seen. And now our question is, so what? What does possessing the Spirit mean for us? And as we look into, particularly in Paul's epistles, there are two things that Paul says to us that he majors on, that he places heavy emphasis upon regarding the effect of God's Holy Spirit in us. And today and next week, we will look at one of those and we will begin developing it today and then see how it works itself out next week. But let's look this morning at Genesis chapter 1, the creation of mankind. We'll begin in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female he created them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Look at verse 27, the different parts. We have three statements there that are pretty much saying the same thing. The first statement, God created man in his image. The second statement, he created him in the image of God. The third statement, he created them male and female. There are two significant differences as we go through those statements, particularly in that third line. In the third line, he does not say God created man. He says God created them. First line, God created man. Second line, God created him. Third line, God created them. First line, God created man in his own image. Second line, in the image of God, he created him. Third line, male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? In that third line, being created in the image of God is replaced by being created male and female. And that actually is what Moses intends to say here, what the Spirit of God intends to say. And we know that because if you just listen to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, you'll hear this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. He named them man. That's what we see in Genesis 1, 27, that God creates man. He creates them in his image, male 
and female. What is going on here? What does it mean for God to create man in his own image? What is God? God is a tri-unity. Three persons, one God. What is man? Man is a di-unity. Two persons, one man. These two are equal in person and standing before God. And yet the two persons differ in their role, in their authority. And yet they exist in unity. And thus the creation of man as male and female shows God's image how? In harmonious interpersonal relationships. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist as one. Never any difference or disagreement. One. Man created in the image of God. A di-unity to exist as one. And there's quite a bit of evidence of this unity of man in the original creation. For example, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. God creates Adam. We've already seen that Adam is created male and female in the image of God. So when God makes the man and breathes into him the breath of life, God is bringing to life not just a man, he's actually bringing to life the entire human race in that one man. So look at verse 23. In bringing to life Adam, God also brought to life everything that would become Eve. The rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man says, this is bone of my bones, what was created from the dust of the ground. Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's why she is called woman. What's the point of this? Verse 24, therefore... Because of the way that God created the woman, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A man leaves his parents from whom his life springs. He is joined to his wife, and they become one. This oneness is visible, it's open, it's evident. You can see this oneness in verse 25. This oneness is evident in the open and intimate relationship of nakedness between the man and the woman. Because the woman is taken from man, it is appropriate not that men remain single, but that a man be joined to a woman. Because mankind was created as a unity of parts. This is symbolized in the intimacy and nakedness of the man and his wife. The human race then was created one, one with God and one in itself. And in that condition, it was paradise. 
The story changes though in chapter 3. The serpent intrudes into the garden. He is said in verse 1 to be, chapter 3 verse 1, to be crafty. And that word crafty sounds just like the word naked in the previous verse. Arum, arumin are the two words. There's a word play here that's going on. The account in Genesis 2 ends with open, unbroken, unbounded intimacy between the man and the wife. In other words, the serpent who enters in He's working to distance men from God, yes, but that's not his only goal, to separate men from God. Distancing the man and his wife from one another is also the corollary goal. And the man and his wife succumb to the temptation, they rebel against God's command, they sin, and what is the effect of sin? Verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. They suddenly become aware of their nakedness. And so they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. The fig leaves symbolize the division of the relationship. Now there's something between the man and the woman. Now there is a barrier. And we commonly think of these fig leaves as the man and the woman trying to cover themselves and hide themselves from God. But actually, the fig leaves reverse the nakedness that existed between the man and the woman initially. And so the fig leaves symbolize not only a distance in the relationship between man and God, but between the man and his wife now. The fig leaves are as much a barrier between man and God as they are a barrier between the man and his wife. The human race has been divided. Sin has brought distance between the man and God. We see this in the following verses. God comes down in the cool of the day to walk with the man and the woman in the garden and they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord God. But sin has also brought distance between man and man, between man and woman. This estrangement between man and God and between man and man becomes the pervasive circumstance of the entire human race. The barrier between man and God created by sin goes hand in hand with the barrier between man and man created by sin. And Adam and Eve conceived two sons, Cain and Abel. Both of them bring a sacrifice to God. God regards Abel's sacrifice with favor. He does not have regard for Cain's and Cain grows angry and God confronts Cain about his anger and warns him that sin is right at the door, ready to pounce upon him. But instead of being warned by the voice of God about the possibility of sin, instead of listening to God's warning, Cain's anger that God has disregarded his sacrifice drives him headlong into further sin. The conflict between men here finds new expression when Cain rises up and kills his brother. But we must see here in Genesis 4 what we've already looked at briefly this morning. And that is that Cain's hatred of his brother 
is simply the outworking of his broken relationship with God. Abel's murder began with Cain's anger towards God. God and man are estranged, and that means that man and man are estranged. Friction in our vertical relationship with God produces friction in our horizontal relationship with other men. The paradise and unity and concord of Eden has been lost. And the spiral continues downward throughout the opening chapters of Genesis until we reach Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. And what Cain has done to his brother is now what fills the earth. The earth is corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. And so God sends a flood of waters upon the earth with Noah and his sons. He wipes the earth clean. And emerging from the ark is Noah and his three sons, a single family, just as existed in the beginning. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, a single family. Emerging from the ark is a single family. Surely now there will be unity and peace upon the earth. Surely now there will be one people, God's people, who exist related to God rightly and related to one another rightly. And yet, after the emergence of mankind from the ark, we read in Genesis 11, these words, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In the beginning, there's a certain amount of unity that exists amongst these people. They all speak one language. They all had invented a technology, making bricks and using bitumen to hold them together. They now had the possibility of constructing a city and remaining together. And so they work to build a tower and a city. They have one language and it seems the people are content to dwell together. There is a certain unity and oneness to them. And yet... They are existing in a community of rebellion against God. And God will not permit this community to remain in peace. He will not permit them, a community of rebels, to exist in union with one another. And so God confuses their languages. And by doing that, just as with Adam and Eve in the garden, God drives them out. He scatters them. No longer do Adam and Eve exist in the garden. They are driven out and their offspring scatter across the face of the earth. Away from the presence of the Lord, God says of Cain. So too here, God confuses their language and they are dispersed over the whole earth. They're separated by language, by cultural practices, by the natural boundaries of rivers and mountains. There's war now and conflict. There's disharmony at every level. These had rebelled against God, and God now has driven them apart. Babel shows us 
that the discord that exists in this world today, all of the war and fighting, where does it come from? Why is there so much strife between men today? The reason for it is because of God's own intervention. God made it that way. Human rebellion against God leads to strife amongst human beings. We can't get along with one another today because we are at war with God. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, between Russia and Ukraine, between husband and wife, between brother and sister, it's all the result of sin. War, strife, divorce, disharmony are all the product of our rebellion against God. Sin always destroys relationships. And God is the one who has condemned humanity to these broken relationships, to war and conflict. And so that means that God is the only one who can gather the human race back together. He's the only one who can reverse what he has put in place. And to do that, if humanity is to be one, it begins by mankind and God being one. Only then can humanity dwell in peace with both God and man. This is the great need in our world today, to be restored to God. How will that happen? We get a window into how this restoration will take place. If you just look at the next chapter in chapter 12, God appears to Abraham. About 2100 BC, God calls Abraham, Abram to leave his father and his mother. He calls Abram out of the mass of the nations, promising to make Abram into a great nation. At Babel, God scatters the nations, and you can read about them in chapter 10, 70 of them. Out of the nations, God chooses one man and says, I'll make you into a nation. All the nations that exist in war and conflict, scattered abroad by God, God says to Abram, I will make you a nation in the midst of all of them. And so Abram's descendants migrate down to Egypt. After 430 years, just as God had called Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans to make him a great nation, so God calls Abram's descendants out of Egypt. He redeems them. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai and he enters into a covenant with them. He gives them laws to obey. He gives them sacrifices to make. And by this covenant, a new nation, a people springs to life. God's people come into being by this covenant. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests a holy nation not a group of individuals a single nation these are the words that you shall speak to the people of israel a new nation a holy nation a nation for god's own possession a people for god a people in whose midst God himself would dwell. All of this would come into being by covenant. And they would dwell together as one. 
around, focused around God's covenant and him in their midst. And yet, this new nation did not last. Just as Adam was driven out because of his rebellion, just as mankind was driven out from the earth by that flood because of his rebellion, just as the people were driven out from Babel and scattered because of their rebellion against God, so Israel is driven out of her land and scattered because of her rebellion against God. And just as Adam, so also with Israel, the nation dies. The unity of the, not every individual Israelite, but the unity of the nation, the people is over. God divides them up and scatters them across the globe, dispersed among the nations. Why did the nation die? Israel was scattered amongst the nations because of her rebellion against God. God disbanded the nation. He would not permit them to continue to dwell together in unity and peace in Palestine, just as at Babel. And today, there are descendants of Abraham in the world, but there is no people for God's name. Israel has died. And the God who called Israel into existence out of the midst of the nations and settled her in a land now reverses all of that. He drives her out. It's as though the fall of Adam is being repeated again. And God's people are being scattered. Israel amongst the nations is condemned to the same existence as all the other nations. Estranged from God, distant from the temple, no longer in God's presence, and separated from other men. There is no people. There is no nation. Sin has destroyed the unity of Israel. There is no people called the people of God's own possession. And yet God preceded the death of the nation of Israel for her sins by sending prophets. The prophets connect Israel's dispersion and scattering. They connect what God did with Israel and the death of that nation to Israel's sins. It is for their sins that they are scattered abroad. The prophets show how Israel has failed to keep God's covenant. And as a result, God's people disintegrate and the nation dies. There are individual Israelites, yes, but there is no people for God's name. And yet the prophets also deliver some astonishing news. The disintegration of God's people is temporary, they say. God's original intent for mankind to exist as a unity, as his people, has not been forgotten. What Adam lost, God intends to restore. And just as with Israel of old, God is going to do it by covenant. The covenant will not be like the first covenant God made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. That was a bilateral covenant and they broke that covenant and the nation fell apart. By this new covenant, God would bring about success. The new covenant would rely upon a totally new power. It was the power that brooded over the waters on that original week of creation that brought it all together into a world that was very good. It was the power that transformed the words of God into the living and breathing, functioning universe that we inhabit today. 
It's the power that caused the light to shine out of darkness at the command of God. It was the power by which God, through his word, made all things very good. God intends to put that power to work again. And by this power, God intends this time to create not a world, but a people, a people for his name. Not individual persons, but a nation for his name. Let's look at this in Ezekiel chapter 36 and see what this power is and what its effect will be. Ezekiel chapter 36. These verses have first of all reference to the nation of Israel, Abraham's physical descendants. But the New Testament, the New Covenant that we have in our Bibles, applies these things to all the nations of the earth. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. It's a reversal of what happened when, when, when Israel sinned. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. How will all this happen? We saw two weeks ago, it's by the next phrase. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land. You shall be my people. And I will be your God. It is a total reversal of what went wrong at the fall. It's a total reversal of everything that's wrong in this world today. God intends to regather a people for his name. This gathering will be a reversal of Adam's sin. It will be a reversal of Israel's dispersal among the nations. This gathering will create a people cleansed of sin, walking in God's statutes, obeying his rules. Here we see the reversal of everything that has gone wrong in this world. Here we see the reversal of Israel's captivity. Here we see peace between God and man restored. By what power will God do all these things? By the power of his spirit. I will put my spirit within you. The central promise of the new covenant is the spirit and it will all come about when God pours out his spirit upon all flesh. And at that point, the world will exist under the headship of Jesus Christ in unity as a body, unified with Christ, who brings us to God. This is God's plan. He will gather Israel out of all the countries into one land. By his spirit, he will create a people holy for his name. The close of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, the rest of our Old Testament, is followed by 400 years of silence. And then, in the wilderness... A prophet appears dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. He's preaching that the Lord is coming. He calls Israel to repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He preaches not in Jerusalem, but in the wilderness. And this means that repentance and baptism can only take place if Israel goes out to him in the wilderness. Through the preaching of John the Baptist, God is calling out a fallen Israel. He's calling out a new people 
for his name. He is regathering Israel in the wilderness, or at least he's preparing to. One day a Galilean peasant arrives to be baptized. It's John's cousin, Jesus of Nazareth. John baptizes him, and as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends upon him. And John opens up his mouth to tell us what's happening. The one who sent me to baptize with water said, The one on whom you see the Spirit descending, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I, John, have come baptizing for this purpose, so that he would be made visible to Israel. John baptizes Jesus of Nazareth so that we might know that he is the one who brings the Spirit. Jesus' ministry leads him to a garden where he is arrested, he is crucified, he rises again, and his followers meet him in Jerusalem. He tells them that he is returning to the Father, but that he will send the Spirit upon them also. Just as God breathed into Adam the animating breath of life, bringing to life the human race, so Jesus breathes upon his disciples and says to them, You receive the Holy Spirit. Apparently the Spirit will come once again to create a new human race. He comes because Jesus has brought him to us. He will gather together a people into one body. These will be the new covenant people of God. He tells these twelve to wait in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit from the Father comes upon them. Only days later, these disciples are gathered in one place, probably the temple itself in Jerusalem. Tongues of fire appear on their heads and there is the sound of a rushing mighty wind. What's happening? The Spirit is coming. He's being poured out from on high by Jesus, ascended to the Father's right hand. The phenomenon attracts a crowd. They all come to see what's going on. Present that day are Jewish proselytes from every nation under heaven, Acts 2 says. They're all there, all the nations in Jerusalem to hear Peter preach. The twelve stand up and begin to explain to the crowd what they have just witnessed. They proclaim that this is what the scriptures foretold, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, God had said. The Jews anticipated that the spirit would be poured out when Messiah came. Well, if he's being poured out now, then they have missed their Messiah, apparently. It was only 50 days earlier that Jesus Christ had been crucified in this very city. He was crucified by God's own plan, raised up to ascend to the Father, to pour out the Spirit. This pouring out of the Spirit, coupled with Jesus' resurrection, proves that he was the Messiah. And when Peter makes his point that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, that he has ascended to heaven, has poured out the Spirit upon these twelve, but not upon all Israel, the people are dumbfounded. They, as a nation, have rejected their Messiah. They have missed their opportunity to receive the Spirit themselves because they have crucified him. And they cry out, brothers, what then shall we do? And Peter replies, repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. It is significant that Peter says, repent and be baptized. Because God's people, this people he has created, are always to be a visible people. They are a people marked off, separated 
from all of the nations, called out. God has always called his people out of the crowd. And if the command was only to repent, God's people would never have been gathered together out of all of the nations. Because repentance happens in my heart and no one else knows about it. It never, repentance alone never produces a public, visible, gathered people. And yet, when Peter says repent and be baptized, suddenly the crowd divides into two groups. There are those who hang back, jeering and mocking, still disbelieving that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord and the Christ. But there are some. 3,000 to be exact, who step forward to be baptized. It's a stunning moment because a new body is forming by the separation that the command to be baptized creates. Now there are those who refuse and now there are those who make their repentance visible in public by stepping forward to be baptized. And each has been baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It is God gathering out of the nations, out of all of the peoples upon the earth present there that day, it is God gathering together a new body. It is a body for Christ, a new people, a new human race. It is a body of repentors. And the visible line that surrounds this body, the boundaries of the land into which God gathers them, the boundaries are the boundaries of baptism. That's how you step across that boundary, visibly. And we'll come to why that is in just a little bit. The visible ordinance of water baptism is how you enter the visible people of God because it is through the baptism of the Spirit that you enter into the invisible people of God. This is God's people, a holy nation, a visible people, called out of the nations and joined together by the Spirit. There is one Spirit, and so all of these who have received Him now are together. And that's exactly where Acts 2 goes. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, after Peter's sermon. This is the point that Luke is trying to make to us. The coming of the Spirit creates what? So what if he comes? Verse 44. I guess we can start in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and bringing and distributing Day by day, they all are together in the temple, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with gladness and generous, glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. It's the creation of a new people that God can continue to add to. It's a group of people marked out visibly by baptism, internally repenting, a group of people composed of all the nations upon the earth. What is the effect of the new covenant? What happens when the Spirit comes? Answer, a new people. 
from all the families of the earth. God is gathering back together. He's beginning to gather together a people for his name. Some months later, Peter receives a knock on his door. It's messengers from Cornelius. Peter goes and preaches the gospel to them, to the Gentiles. And while he is preaching, the Spirit of God falls upon Gentiles. Peter responds by baptizing these Gentiles into the name of Jesus. He and the other Jews with him sit down and eat a meal with these Gentiles. What's happening here is breathtaking. It's a breaking down of the barriers that have existed for so long between Jew and Gentile. Barriers that were created by that Mosaic covenant. Now we see the creation of a new body, and it's not composed just of Jewish proselytes who've come to Jerusalem from every family upon the earth. Now the people who get baptized into this visible body include the Gentiles. His coming is creating a new people, a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Many are becoming one body. And what we're seeing here is exactly what God intends us to see. Everything that I've shown you so far is in Paul's mind when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. This is exactly what Paul had in mind when he wrote this verse. John the Baptist had foretold that one was coming after him who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. The result of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is that his followers would possess the Spirit. We saw that last week. What's the effect of being baptized in the Holy Spirit? What's the effect of receiving the Spirit? What's the effect of Jesus pouring him out? Verse 13. In one Spirit we were all baptized. Poured out. We have him now. Baptized into one body. Jews. Greeks. Slaves free. Jesus' work to pour out the Spirit began at Pentecost. It continued in Cornelius' house. It continues to this day. Invisible Spirit baptism by which the invisible body of Christ is being created. The result is that now we all exist. Not as individual saints bound for heaven as one body. By the pouring out of the Spirit. And the result then is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. That we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. There is one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. You hear what Paul says? Maintain the unity of the Spirit because there's one body and one Spirit. What creates the one body? The one spirit. So be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. God is not merely interested then in saving individuals. He does save individuals. He saves them by their individual faith and repentance. But God does not stop at that moment. The way that they receive all of the benefits of Christ's redemption. How do we receive eternal life? Paul tells us in Romans 4, Romans 8, the Spirit. 
How do we receive all the blessings of the new covenant? The Spirit. What does the new covenant and the coming of the Spirit create? One new body, one new people that exists in unity and harmony. What do we call that body? The church. How did we get into that body invisibly? The Spirit and baptism. Baptism in the Spirit. How do we then enter into the visible manifestations of it? By the visible ordinance of water baptism. And that is why, as you read through the book of Acts, baptism becomes the way that people are added to the church visibly. Now we need to look at just a couple more thoughts here from Ephesians 1. And then we will conclude. What God began with in the Garden of Eden. One world, one human race, existing in perfect unity with the Creator. God intends to get back there one day. He intends to restore it. The question is how? And the answer to that is given to us in, Romans, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. God has made known to us the mystery of His will. His will is according to His purpose, and His purpose is that which He set forth in Christ Jesus. That's an awful lot of words. It means this. God has a plan, a purpose, that He's going to bring about through Christ. What's His plan? Verse 10. It's a plan for the fullness of times. In other words, it's, it's something we're still waiting for. We have not reached the fullness of the times yet. What is the plan for the fullness of the times? It is to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's plan. This is where this splintered universe will arrive, will arrive one day. All things under Christ's Lordship. Not a stray molecule in the entire universe. No rebels. Everything under the Lordship of Christ and everything then unified in Him as one Lord. Now that word unite in verse 10, the middle of that word is the word head. H-E-A-D. How does God plan to bring all things together in unity? He intends to set Christ as the head over all things. And as it's one Lord, now it will all exist in unity, in service to one Lord. That's the plan for the fullness of the times. Do we have to wait until the fullness of the times to see God doing that? And the answer is no. Look at verse 21 of Ephesians 1. Verse 20, God raised Christ from the dead, seated him high up above every name that is named, put all things under his feet and gave him as head today by the resurrection over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ one day will be head over all things and the effect will be that it will all be united under his headship on that day. But he's begun to unfold that plan now. Christ is the head of the body, the church. In the church, we see God's plan to unify in Christ everything begun. 
one new man. It's why Peter tells us that we're a new nation. It's why Peter tells us we're a new people. It's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are a new human race in Christ Jesus. In the church, we see God's plan begun to be fulfilled. How? By the pouring out of His Spirit, who brings us together and unites us to Christ, our head. And this is why Paul exhorts us to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is why unity is such a huge emphasis in the New Testament. Nothing displays the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the power of the gospel, the ability of the Spirit to transcend every barrier. Nothing displays that glory like unity. Can any person in this world create unity today? Is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict solvable? How long has it been that the world's leaders have sought to bring peace between Russia and Ukraine? Can any marriage counselor solve every divorce? What will bring rival siblings together in love and peace? What will bring an end to the war? Human beings have not yet achieved that after thousands of years of trying. But God's Spirit produces that in the church every day as we endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's the blessed privilege of being part of a local church. He is gathering together in a visible unity, unity created by the pouring out of the Spirit. He's gathering us together that God may have a people for His name. And our part is not to create the unity, our part isn't to have some big program that makes us all feel one. Our part is to respond to God's work that has made us one by living in harmony and peace with one another. We live externally, visibly, in line with the internal reality. We are one body in Christ, and we must endeavor to maintain that. This is how God is recreating the beauty of Eden. Local churches operating with Jesus Christ as head are previews of the unity this world will realize when Christ is head over all things. This is how God is fulfilling His purposes in this world, in Christ Jesus. And part of living in the Spirit is living in the unity that the Spirit creates. Many members, one body. Each member preferring the other members above itself. No quarreling, Paul says. No strife sharing material things, loving one another with the love of Christ, forgiving one another, praying for one another, helping each other grow up into Christ our head. In this way, God is glorified. Briefly, this means three things. First of all, the relationship we share in the local church is stronger than blood or language or family or ethnicity. Other believers in the local church are our family. They are our nation. They are our people. It's a relationship created by God's Holy Spirit. You say, but I have the same blood flowing through my veins as that man. I have blood in me and he has blood in him. Well, that's a natural relationship. 
What about if the indivisible spirit of God is in him and in me? Can you divide the spirit? That is an inviolable relationship and we must not tarnish that. We must exist in unity. The gospel alone by the power of the spirit can unite people of all kinds. Secondly, we must never think of ourselves as creating the unity of the body. There's nothing we can do to create this. You cannot make this happen. The world tries to create a city where many different nationalities live together and it's all peace, but it's actually not. It's all individuals living for themselves who don't even interact. The church is not like that. This unity must be proclaimed. It's a fact. And then we must call one another to live in light of it. This unity appears when we lay aside our own agendas and ideas and submit ourselves to one another in the local church. And thirdly, we get to look at the unity of our church family and others as God brings them. And in that unity, we get to behold the power of Jesus Christ to unite all things in himself. The power to bring the new creation which exists in perfect unity and righteousness. What will bring about a world like that? Is it hard to believe that a world like that would ever exist? It ought not be when we see God already producing that today in the local church. The most powerful apologetic for the power of Jesus Christ to heal this world is the love that exists in the local church. You cannot create that on your own. Only the Spirit of God can produce that. And that means that when we come into the gathering of visible saints, we are entering into a little slice of what that new world will be. Ironically, Christians who don't want to gather with God's people are essentially saying, I have no interest in going to heaven because the church is a little slice of heaven on earth today. What will be by God's power, he is doing now by his power. And by being a part of this, we show then that our destination is the new creation.